Hi, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Targeting AI podcast. Today, we're speaking with Cliff Yurkevich. He's a strategist and expert when it comes to AI and bias. Cliff is the vice president of global strategy for Phenom, a global HR technology company. Welcome, Cliff, to today's show. Thanks for having me, Esther. So I want to start by having you discuss what your background is. Um, we discussed it in Exit before and what led you to Phenom. Can you talk about that and how you became interested in AI and iron and all that good stuff? Sure. So I, I'll, I'll try to be brief in, in, you know, in giving the background, but I think it's important to note that I have, you know, this a very varied experience, um, which is, is really what led me to be in this role. Um, you know, I started my career actually as a, as a musician. And, um, you know, then, uh, you know, through different channels, I, I became a, um, a creative director um, for a pretty big agency out of Philadelphia. Uh, and that led me to a deep interest in software. Um, so I uh, taught myself uh, engineering, um, you know, some, some things back then. Um, that that aren't popular now as engineering changes rapidly, um, but uh, you know, th then that led me to uh, building my own software company. So sort of a combination of of a design and technology background, which is what brought me to Phenom. You know, and the the challenge with Phenom as a startup when I came uh, about eight years ago, I was employee twenty one, so we were really early stage startup in the space, but it was sort of a unique. Uh, need that Phenom had, not just someone that could build out a service and delivery team, um, but also someone that could bridge the gap between, um, you know, the technical world and what business people needed to understand in order to buy the product, because the, the domain was very new. We were really a pioneer in the domain of candidate experience and bringing artificial intelligence into the front-facing uh, side of human resources recruiting and talent management. Um, and so my background being varied, I was able to somewhat be a translator, um, you know, between the technology and business people that want to understand the technology. And that has really developed well over the years. And, and my role has grown, you know, again, I started here at Phenom uh, being the first leader in charge of service and delivery, but that morphed into this role as a strategist, really understanding the ecosystem, the domain that we operate um, and, and why it's important. Uh, and Phenom now, thankfully, isn't the only uh, provider in the domain. There's 2,000 different solutions that have popped up in the about eight years that I've been at Phenom, which shows you the value of bringing artificial intelligence and machine learning into these experiences. It's a critical technology in delivering on the promise of a better candidate and recruiter experience. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of the background, uh, a little bit unique, but, um, you know, I think it's been very rewarding and I'm grateful to be in the role that I'm in. Okay, so Cliff, um, we're interested in how HR and AI technology intersect and particularly generative AI is the latest thing, but um, is it just in candidates and recruiting or is it also in 
you know, job performance? Is it also in uh, terminating? Is it in um, what other aspects? What are all the aspects that that you're applying the, the latest advances in uh, AI technology? There isn't a a role or experience that especially generative AI won't touch. Now, generative AI has actually, you know, for your audience should know that it's actually been around for a really long time. Um, and AI itself has been around since the 1950s. Um, so this is, this is nothing new to those of us that have sat in the technology space. The difference now is uh, two things, that we have a mechanism to deliver the technology, make it a little bit more ubiquitous, um, and we have enough data to make those experiences useful. That, th those are the two drivers. So when we think about that, um, I, I would start with a statement, uh, it may be a bold statement, but you know, generative AI um, is gonna change the way that we work forever. That, you know, and so that's where I would start. Is it important to the experiences that we have as a candidate or as a recruiter? Sure. Um, but you're gonna go into your job every day uh, and you're going to start seeing these tools being adopted very, very rapidly. So the speed of adoption is really um, what is so innovative about this technology. Uh, and we can get into that because I think that there's an important history lesson there about innovation and adoption and how the, how the workforce is going to change. But specific to your question, I would start with, um, we talk about work zones. Um, and, you know, there are essentially five work zones. Uh, the first work zone is work that's very, very repetitive. Um, it might be skilled, uh, but there's a lot of repetition to it. Going through the scale up to work zone five, um, far less repetition, very high skill uh, uh, is required and, and a lot of creativity. So, you know, on the front end, you might have, you know, plumbers and landscapers in a work zone one. Again, there's skill there, but it's very repetitive. And on the other end, you've got, you know, doctors and musicians in a work zone five. So lots of skill and lots of creativity, less repetition involved in those roles. Well, generative AI is going to affect all of them differently. You know, if you look at the work zone, the lower end of the work zones where this, this, the, there's a lot of repetition, how much of that work can be taken over? And we're talking about task replacement right now. How many of those tasks can be replaced, um, you know, by generative AI and artificial intelligence in general? And the example, you know, we'll use recruiting as example, which is really sits between a zone two and three. So there's obviously some repetitive nature to the work, but it's it moves more into the creative because you're talking about dealing with people, and and you know, generative AI in the case of a recruiter is something that um, if you look at task replacement. Um, job description writing, for example, is far better with generative AI than it is with a human being um, because of all the factors involved in building a job description that is, is, um, represents the work of the actual organization, represents the, we'll call it keyword for, you know, just to simplify the keywords and phrases that are needed in search engine optimization um, and also to be diverse and inclusive and write in an unbiased language, you know, format, which is incredibly important um, to connect with candidates reading those job descriptions and also the systems that are um, analyzing them and distributing them. So there's no human being 
that can work in an organization that has a hundred job openings, let alone some of the organizations we work with that have a quarter million job openings that could be consistently writing and representing the organization as it should be across all job descriptions. So you need technology at scale to be able to do this with consistency and also delivering on the brand and the culture of the organization, which again are important elements. So that's just one task that can be replaced, you know, and, but it's a big one, you know, you know, uh, recruiters probably spend, you know, let's just say on a weekly basis, they might spend two to three hours fine tuning job descriptions. Well, if I can replace that in seconds, um, then I'm spending two or three hours doing something more meaningful as a recruiter, which could be, and in most cases is connecting, you know, human beings to meaningful work and speaking to them about the work that we're offering and what the organization can offer them in terms of, you know, um, of uh, value and, uh, you know, and mission and purpose, which again are important things today. So there isn't a, a role out there that generative AI won't, won't touch. I mean, I'm, I'm again, started my career as a musician. I still am a musician. We've been using artificial intelligence and now we're using generative AI in the production space um, you know, I don't think there's a piece of commercial music today that AI hasn't touched. Um, you know, there's still some music that, uh, you know, on the individual level that maybe is very, very raw, like it was back in, in, in the seventies and eighties. Um, but you know, there, there just isn't a role today where these, you know, these things aren't going to affect at least at the task replacement level. I have a follow-up question. I have a couple of follow-up questions that I will start with one. Can you just uh, clarify about what you mean by work zones? I'm not sure if you did that a little bit. Yeah. So when we think of it, just in, in our domain, you know, when we, when we think about how do we classify work uh, and the simplest way to talk about work zones, a one through five, so one, two, three, four, five, um, a one we would think of uh, as maybe frontline work, right? So distribution center, call center, again, plumbers, landscapers, very repetitive work, you know, factory work, things of that nature. Even nursing to some extent is more of a zone two, maybe three, but there's lots of repetition in the work. When you get to the zone five, we think of that if, if zone one or that end of the spectrum is frontline work, zone five is what we call knowledge work. Um, so you need to be highly skilled and highly creative in order to be successful, you know, in those, in those, uh, uh, in those professions. And, and so no one starts out as a zone five. You, over time, you work from a zone one through a zone five, even if you're going to medical school, all right? You know, you're, you might be in a zone one, you know, as you're entering medical school, you know, by the time you're done and doing, you know, internships and residencies and fellowships, um, you turn yourself into a zone five because you become a, a very uniquely skilled individual um, that is going to have a fit within an organization, a specific type of organization. Does that make more sense, Esther? That does make more sense. So you talk about job description writing, right? And we know when it comes to AI and hiring, there could be some kind of like bias, right? How do you prevent that? Especially when it comes to job description writing, because I've heard like job descriptions are like as a wish list that, you know, that recruiters or employers want, not necessarily what they necessarily need, right? So how does that kind of fit to make sure that, again, you already have AI being used to like try to find who's the right candidate, but 
when it starts at the beginning of job description writing, doesn't that become a little bit more dangerous? Well, it can be. Here's my statement on artificial intelligence, even generative AI, which is a variant um, of artificial intelligence. Um, AI can discriminate against all of us. AI cannot experience the world the way human beings do. Um, it's not connecting to emotion um, and it's not observing the world around it and, and crafting, at least today, crafting um, you know, how it develops its place in this world. It is a function. Um, and, and so it can discriminate against all of us. It's not just a matter of gender or ethnicity. Um, it's anything. It's any demographic attribute of a human being. Uh, AI takes no discerning. We have to teach it. Um, you know what that is, and so the question is a good one. How do you how do you eliminate bias? Well, the answer to that, and most people don't want to hear this, is you can't. You can't eliminate all bias. It is impossible to do that, and so it requires humans in the loop. And you're going to hear that term a lot, but it really is true. Humans in the loop to be examining the how these tools are functioning and being used in organizations. We call that adverse impact. So there are two types of bias. There's algorithmic bias when it comes to AI, algorithmic bias and adverse impact. Algorithmic, al algorithmic bias we can uh, test for. Um, and, and there's an easy way to, to actually test for it, although it takes massive amounts of data to validate or verify that a test can be relied upon or the results of the test. And, and so, for example, with uh, you mentioned matching, job matching. Um, so we look at a, a set of job descriptions, and in this case, we've tested on the Phenom platform, we did this with thousands of jobs. We did an adverse impact test of just our algorithmic systems. And we took thousands of jobs and tens of thousands of candidates, and we fed it data um, on, on both. Uh, and folks that matched to particular jobs, we started tracking. Then we take that data and then you start adding in demographic information. Now, I want to be very, very clear. There, in, in the Phenom platform, at least, I can't speak to others, but, uh, but others are also in this category. There's no live part of our system that we use demographic information algorithmically. That's important. Like we're not feeding in that you, know, that you are white or Catholic or disabled or a veteran. Uh, into an algorithmic equation to determine fit. That's one of the ways that you immediately um, can reduce bias by don't feed it that information. And there's a really great story about Amazon uh, recruiting years ago where they fed it gender data on engineers. And, and by the way, this never became a live system. You can Google uh, Amazon gender bias in recruiting and they, they released all the information about it, and to their credit, uh, it was never a live system. I want to make that really clear because people think that it was and it wasn't. But it was a test. And they fed it, I, I believe it was like 15,000 engineers uh, and, and the gender data. And when they asked the test audience to apply to jobs, if you were female, it knew that and said, you're not a good fit. Why? because most of the engineers that had worked in Amazon throughout the years were male. So it thought that male was a required attribute of, of a successful engineer at Amazon. And again, I would repeat, this was never a live system, right? But it proved the test in terms of bias that if you feed it data, it will find a pattern and use that attribute. So, so we don't do that. But for testing purposes, we have to. 
So we take the data, the, the two sets of data, feed it one without the demographic data, and then we feed it with the demographic data. And we look, are we getting the same result? If we're getting the same result, it means that the algorithms are not using the demographic data in determining match. And our system, we proved to a degree of 97% plus that there was no impact. Now you're never going to get to 100%. There's no system in the world that won't have some level of bias in it. But we're not always talking about algorithmic bias. We're talking about data bias. There might not be enough data to determine if there is a risk of bias or not. And I think this is what we're gonna see as we um, see these systems become more ubiquitous. We're gonna see not bad people, not bad intentions, but we're gonna see a lack of really good data because it takes a massive amount of data to verify these systems. So that's a bias test. We can test with demographic information and without, we should get the same results. Right? And that would prove that the algorithms aren't using demographic information. The second test is what we call adverse impact. Adverse impact, just put in layperson's terms, is um, how do humans react to a recommendation that an artificial intelligence system is providing? So in this case, I'm recommending Esther or Sean for a job. Um, what do I as Cliff, as the hiring manager do or recruiter do? So do I hire Sean or do I hire Esther if those are my two choices? And why did I do that? Um, if, if the recommendation is bias-free, which we can prove it, it is, then if there is bias in the system, you know, and if Sean is a certain demographic over what Esther is, um, and maybe one demographic is more desirable because we want more diversity in the workforce, but we didn't move in that direction, can we find out why the human made that decision? What data? And that we call that adverse impact. So we can measure that and we can actually measure it in real time. So if we give a recruiter a slate, we call it a funnel of candidates. And we've given that recruiter a diverse funnel, right? Representative of the demographic that's available to us. Because that's the other problem with diversity hiring is sometimes you work in regions or areas that just aren't diverse. And if it's a brick and mortar role, someone has to show up to a job, you might be able to go 25 to 30 miles, you know, uh, outside of the radius of that location for your audience, it still may not be diverse enough, right? And you can never reach, let's say, gender neutrality in every role, simply because those people don't exist in your demographic. So you either have to think about how you're recruiting and where you're recruiting people from, or you have to have a more reasonable standard, which is the demographic standard that I would recommend to audiences is understand the demographic in which you operate. If it is a brick and mortar role, right? You have to show up to a location. And in cities, it's really easy to be diverse because most cities are wildly diverse. But when you get out to some rural areas, especially in America, there may not be that sense of diversity, right? You might have the black population might be 5% of the population. Well, if you're trying to get to, you know, 30%, you know, black representation in an organization, but you only have a 5% availability of candidates, you're never going to meet that standard. So we have to think about that when we talk about adverse impact is what is the audience availability that you have, um, you know, in terms of recruiting and, and that function. So there are, in other words, there are lots of factors that play into human decision-making. It's not just the recommendation of artificial intelligence, but we have to measure this because we must be accountable 
for the use of artificial intelligence and these recommendations that it may be making in our decision-making. And they're with New York Local Law 144, uh, which is a past legislation, EU AI, the soon-to-be-passed California regulation around AI, they're all saying you not only have to explain artificial intelligence in the process to the end user, what are you using? How are you using it? How are you using it in the decision-making process? You also have to be able to prove it. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a, in a, we want you to focus on that a little bit more later. Okay, but before you do that, can I jump in with a question to clarify about, um, so when, you, when you're feeding in unbiased data as far as, you know, ethnicity or gender or whatever, but yet if you're seeking to have diversity in hiring, how do you then go out and reach un underrepresented groups if you're feeding in, if you're not feeding in that demographic data? So it, 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 it feels like a dichotomous objective, right? Um, and that's the problem. You, you really can't use it because you will use uh, demographic data in AI again because it will 100% create a bias. Um, so the way that you do it is, uh, the first is you have to ask applicants, because it can only be applicants, at least in the United States and most countries, only applicants can be asked to volunteer their demographic information self-identity, right? So in that application process, you identify your race, your gender, your veterans in America anyway. These are the EEOC um, guidelines. Uh, race, gender, uh, veteran status, disability status, and then any other special circumstances that you choose to volunteer. So it has to be self-identified. What about class diversity and income diversity? That doesn't come in, huh? The EEOC does not qualify those as... Now, you, you know, if you want to ask... You can, but um, the, the challenge is it is indefensible if you ask someone those questions, right, according to the EEOC. Now, those regulations may change, but they aren't today. Um, in other countries, um, you know, you can, I know in some, there are some European countries, international countries, where you can ask someone if they are married. Um, you can ask them if they are Catholic or Protestant. Uh, you know, that is something that happens in Ireland, actually, um, which is, is completely legal to do. And you can make a hiring decision based on that information, but not in America, right? So, so um, you know, how do you get that? So first, it has to be volunteered, right? You can't force someone, you can't make it required. Um, so, and many people do volunteer that information. And when you have that information, you can, through business logic, so this is the way Phenom would do it, um, if a client chooses to uh, use this data, we have one algorithm that is running to look at uh, fit. And fit we define as are they fit to be interviewed, not are they fit for the job. Is there enough information um, to say, you know, Esther um, has certain skills, she's in the right location, she has the right experience level, the right previous job titles um, to be interviewed for a role we have. Great, that's a fit. Then that might be an ABC type of fit. Um, but also Esther may fit into a diverse category. So Esther has identified as an underrepresented class uh, on her job application. That is business logic. It's not algorithm, but it's business logic to say, and what we do is we just label Esther's applicant as diverse candidate because they have self-identified in a class that is recognized by the government or by another regulatory body as an underrepresented class. And so you have, essentially you have two pieces of data, the algorithmic fit for interview 
and the diversity classification that is something that can be considered, um, you know, compliant towards whether we move forward with, uh, you know, Esther's interview process or hiring process as it may be. So one's business logic, simple, self-reported um, information. And the second is an algorithmic fit based on their profile. Does that make sense, Sean? Uh, yes, just one quick follow-up. All right, so speaking out of perhaps self, uh, myself as an example, um, age discrimination is talked about. But a lot of times, age discrimination, you, you know, you can't ask an applicant their age, but you can see when they graduated from college, or you can see that they have 19 work experiences. So doesn't that automatically create some bias just automatically? Like, how do you, you don't, you don't want to squash applicants' experiences either, but... Isn't it almost impossible to guard to to not screen out older candidates? You can just tell they're old no matter what without asking their age. Yeah. So again, that's going to be the that's going to be the human in the loop because algorithmically, we're not looking at the date you graduated college if you went um, and how many jobs you have. We're just saying over a period of time you have X number of years of experience and you've built a set of skills over that time. So, um, so it would come down to a human being, and this is what we can measure as adverse impact. Did, you know, if Cliff is older than Sean, and, you know, but Cliff is more qualified and meets the pattern of success, uh, what a successful uh, professional looks like for this type of work in an organization, but we hired Sean, that would be a trigger to say, is there an adverse impact? Is a human being looking at age? It's really hard to prove. Um, you know, there, so in other words, if you just hired Sean over Cliff and Sean was younger, but, but we had equal experience or Cliff was more experienced, um, one time would not be enough for someone that there's a pattern of ageism happening. It would have to be dozens, if not hundreds of times across an organization where all of the Sean's were hired over all of the cliffs, even though all the cliffs were more qualified. Playing devil's advocate, what if the employer has a legitimate reason for wanting to hire a younger person, all things being equal, because they don't want to put all this training and resources into somebody who may retire in a few years? Yeah. So I think there are obviously legitimate reasons over why you might hire someone that that could be equally qualified, but the tenure of a, of a role is important to the company. I don't think it is, and, and I'm not a lawyer. I must. I have to say that right away. Like for for the audience, uh, this isn't legal advice, and I'm not an attorney. But my experience tells me that it, you know, if you're doing that, and you can prove to the EEOC and to others that may audit you, OFCCP, whatever it may be, that the tenure of a role is extraordinarily important to the viability of the company. And that there's a risk that that person may not desire to stick with the company very long. I think that's a legitimate reason. But you better be able to prove it. You mentioned a little bit about a data problem. Is there a way to fix the data problem when it comes to AI and hiring? Yeah. So, so you, you, you know, I'll using your terminology, you know, fixing the data problem um, sounds really simple. And, and it sounds simple because if you don't have enough data, just go get more data, right? But there are two types of data that we're talking about. The first data is real data, real data, lived experience data. Um, and then there's what we call synthetic data, which is data that, that sometimes we need to make up in order to fill the gaps. And let me give you an example of that. Um, with job matching, our previous example, um, you know, at Phenom, so we've been doing this for 12 years now, and we've had 
well over, I mean, we're approaching 2 billion candidates that have come through our platform over the last 12 years. Obviously, a lot of repeat candidates because um, uh, the whole working population of the world is about 2.8 billion. So we've had, we've had a lot of people come through um, and use the system to job match. But that wasn't the case when we first started, right? So we go back 12 years ago, how much experience and maturity did the algorithm have in determining what good looks like? Because I'll give you the simple uh, definition of machine learning, which is, again, a derivative of, of, of AI. It's pattern matching. But it's pattern matching at a huge scale and speed. So you need lots of data in order to, to teach machine learning all the different patterns. So think of patterns as, and, and you'll think of a closed system where there's no machine learning. Um, you, everyone now has a, a chess game on their phone. It just comes with your phone now, right? Well, that's a closed system. There's no machine learning in, in these chess games. It has learned every pattern and variation of the game because it's, it is finite, even though it might be, you know, a billion different patterns, like it's learned them all. And when you play the game, it has seen that if you're playing against the computer, it has seen the pattern that you're playing before. It knows exactly what you're going to do. And it's actually quite hard to win at the highest level. In fact, it's almost impossible to win if, if the computer is given the white turn, the first turn in chess, it is almost impossible to win. Um, it's, it literally comes down to that. So when you're playing chess, you have to essentially dumb down the, um, you know, the, the computer player by saying, give me a beginner. And what it's doing then is it's saying, okay, I'm going to cut out 90% of the patterns that I've learned, and I'm going to use just some basic patterns so that you have a chance to win and learn, right? It's the same thing with job matching. It's the same thing with anything that's AI-based. The data the, the number of patterns that it has learned is really determining the success rate or failure rate of the pattern matching itself and the results that it gives you. So the challenge is fixing the data problem means with real data, you have to have real people as it may be banging on the system, kicking tires, um, you know, using it. It's the reason why, and I'll give you a real world today example. We look at automated driving with Tesla, which is extraordinarily complex machine learning because it is literally learning as it goes. If we want a world where automated driving becomes the norm, that someday that none of us are actually sitting behind the wheel, we're, we're Jetsons, we're getting in a vehicle and it's just taking us where we want to go with relative safety and ease. It has to learn those patterns. It's the reason you know Tesla automobiles have been involved in accidents where unfortunately people have been hurt and killed um, because it doesn't know the pattern. But how does it learn the pattern is if it's not in the real world. You cannot teach it everything it needs to know synthetically, which is the second data set we're talking about. We can create data sets based on previous learned behavior and predicting what the behavior will be, but there's no certainty to that, right? There's a degree of certainty, but not 100%. So we can feed the Tesla vehicle um, synthetic data on driving behaviors based on what we know, but it's still going to hurt people, you know, until it's out in the real world. Because human beings are very unpredictable in, in many ways. We love patterns, but driving is one of those things where there are so many factors. 
hundreds of thousands of factors and patterns that need to be learned by these systems. So can you fix it? You can fix some of it with synthetic data, but the reality is people have to use systems in order for them to get better. You mentioned this human in the loop, right? And I think you spoke a little bit and you touched a little bit about the idea that sometimes it's not necessarily the AI that is biased, it's the human that is biased. How do you kind of balance the boat of like, is human in the loop even as effective or even worth it if you have you know, AI and then maybe the human is biased? Or is there someone that's going to have to, and then why use AI if you're going to have someone double check? In the world we live in today, a, there's a lot of fear around artificial intelligence, right? Which is really interesting to me as, as a technologist because we've been using AI for, I mean, 50 years. And if we think just in the last decade, maybe two decades, AI has been used in the financial industry. It's been used in the, in the health domain to help make decisions, literally making, you know, you know, um, giving diagnostic information to a doctor far more accurate than a human being could do. But it still takes a human being to say, is that the right diagnostic, right? In the financial industry, your credit score, at least in America, your credit score is in fact an algorithm. And if you look at you know, someone that's got a credit score, a, a really great credit score would be 800 above. A bad credit score is maybe 500 and below. Um, but how do people that get a loan with a 500 credit score, that's determined by a human being. Maybe there were extenuating circumstances like, you know, they had medical bills because they had a health problem, you know. Um, it takes a human being to really understand experience. And that's really where AI falls woefully short. It can help us understand data and examine data and find those patterns that we're talking about, but it's really bad, horribly bad at understanding someone's experience. And those things are important things to consider because if we didn't, you know, then now you're looking for perfection. You're looking for a pattern of the perfect, in this case, the perfect candidate to fill the role that will just be everything in a bag of chips in terms of, of being the perfect employee, the perfect worker, right? Well, perfection is unattainable. And that's why human beings have to be in the loop. Um, it, it's also in the loop, it's important to keep these systems in check because there are bad actors out there, right? It's one of the reasons that EUAI, and we'll talk about regulation a little, a bit, a little bit later, but it's a risk-based system. It, the risk-based system is something, how much human intervention is required in order to validate that AI is giving an expected experience, right? And it's not being used nefariously, um, you know, in the background. And we'll talk about what that means later. But in today's world, and, and I'll, again, I'll give you a great example. It is possible today, you know, and in, in, in my second life, I'm a pilot. I've been a pilot for 20 years. And... There's a lot of chatter in the commercial aviation industry about using uh, automation to fly planes. So we already have this in the military, right? Drones, great example. Remotely operated. Some even aren't even remotely operated. They are just, you know, programming it and go. And it does everything itself, including taking off and landing and flying in bad weather. So the question really becomes, we are going, going to start seeing this, by the way. Would you, Esther, and this is a question for you, and I'd love you to answer it, would you get on a plane today that didn't have a pilot? No, I don't like getting on planes that have pilots. 
Right. And this is the problem, right? Even though in many circumstances, that flight is going to be just fine. You know, that artificial intelligence, we know we have enough data about flying at this point and weather um, and the ecosystem of aviation that that flight is going to be very successful. Would it surprise you to know, though, Esther, that in commercial flying today, that there's a feature called auto land, which, by the way, landing is the most difficult phase of flight, that there's auto land and there are many um, pilots that are sitting back in the cockpit while your plane lands via computer. So while you may not, well, you get on a plane today and you see the pilot, AI may be flying the entire journey. And this is the world we're living in. So it's a behavior of, so now I made Esther even more scared to fly. But, but here's, the, here's the thing about artificial intelligence. In many cases, artificial intelligence, because we can monitor it, because we can understand the data that we're feeding it to get the algorithmic outcome, um, is better at some recommendations. And even in the, in the world of aviation, some decision-making is better. I don't know a single pilot during like a phase of flight, um, you know, in terms of an approach to land, there's a thing called a crosswind component. A crosswind component is really easy to understand. If you take a runway and a straight line, you're looking at a runway straight down the runway and you're in the air. Crosswind is when the wind is blowing from a 90 degree angle from either side. Every plane has a crosswind component, meaning the amount of wind that it can take and correct for before it literally can't stay straight with the runway anymore. AI, artificial intelligence in the autopilot, is far better at flying a plane in a crosswind situation than a human being is, generally speaking. So most commercial flights up to about 100 or 200 feet off the ground in a, in a severe crosswind it's artificial intelligence that's flying that plane because its decision-making is better than a human being. And that's where it makes flying safer, right? We want to use artificial intelligence in ways that make us safer, but it can't be the end-all be-all of our decision-making. At some point, AI does reach a limit, at least today. It reaches a limit where that decision-making is uh, better put in the hands of a human being. And certainly in the human resources uh, domain, there is no AI that I know of that can make better decisions than human beings. Makes very good recommendations. And Sean, you mentioned earlier about, say, terminations, about the workforce realignment. AI's role in that is looking at a workforce and saying, who are the people that possess the most skills for us to maintain an organization that might be going through a reduction in workforce, right? We still have to maintain and grow the business, you know, but unfortunately, we have, we've got to reduce our biggest expense, which is people. That, unfortunately, is, is a cost of doing business. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It feels negative for the individual, of course. And we should have empathy and sympathy for those that, that are put in that situation. But the reality is the business must be sustained in order to keep others employed or keep that product or service in the domain. Because if that doesn't happen, for example you know, we reduce competition. And what happens when we reduce competition? The cost of goods goes up. And then we get these big conglomerate corporate companies that are literally controlling entire markets, entire products and services, which is bad for all of us. So while a reduction in force is a bad thing, if we can use artificial intelligence to keep that entity running and viable and hopefully grow in the future, that's good for all of us. It's bad for the person, and I understand that. But then on the flip side, 
what is good for that person is maybe if another employer is using artificial intelligence to help find better fitting workers to help grow you know, or sustain their business, maybe the person that was just laid off from a job is a really good match somewhere else and they can quickly be, um, you know, regain employment somewhere based on that. Um, so there's good and bad to both sides of this. It really comes up down to human beings and it's why human beings are so important as to be kept in the decision-making chair of these technologies. Okay, thanks. We, we've got about 10 minutes left. So I wanna see if we can wrap up with the New York hiring law. AI and hiring law. We, our first guest on this podcast was Michael Bennett of Northeastern University. Um, and he, he helped write that law, his group at uh, the Northeastern uh, Institute for Experiential AI. Um, so we talked about it with him when it just had gone into effect. So I guess, first of all, what, are, what have been its effects so far on hiring, not only New York, but nationwide? Because so many companies do business in New York, right, and have to comply with it, just like the... Uh, GDPR, if you do business in Europe, you have to comply with it. Same with New York. Um, so first of all, is the, is the law doing what it's supposed to? What's going to be the impact of it and in reducing bias in hiring? What do you think of the, of the future? Are they going to have to fine tune it or is it doing what it's supposed to? Yeah, the first thing I'll say about New York Local Law 144 is I thought I, I believe that laws like this are necessary. To Esther's point, like how do, how do we keep humans loop? I think you're going to have to regulate it. I appreciate the effort that was put into law, but I think it's woefully inadequate in order what it's, in, to what it's trying to achieve. And the, the example that I would give you is that the, the first drafts and, and, and the first passed legislation, um, and the reason that it got delayed is, was a simple one. Um, and it was, maybe it was recognized by those that were, were writing, but recognized too late. Um, so they had to pause it. Um, and that is uh, how you test for bias and adverse impact and the law originally said that you had to wait a year in order to use artificial intelligence, AEDTs, automated uh, um, employment decision-making tools in the hiring process. Well, the problem with that was how do you validate um, the use of a technology if you're not feeding it data to our earlier data conversation? So they, they eventually changed the law at literally at the last minute and said, okay, if the vendor, the creator of that system has tested for bias, not adverse impact, but bias, and proves that the, it is bias-free to a degree, because nothing is 100%, then that's okay. And so, so it's woefully inadequate because the law says that, and it's written, again, I, I hate slamming the law, but it's like, this is a shortcoming. I think it was probably a compromise um, that if it is the only point of decision, so there's three things that it looks at. The third thing is, is it the only decision point in the hiring process? In other words, did the AI screen me and decide I'm getting hired? Cliff, right? I apply for the job because Cliff is the one you're hiring. And there's no system that does that. So right there, the effectiveness of the law is completely diminished because there's no single artificial intelligence tool that any employer is saying, I'm going to rely on it and only it to make the hiring decision. So there is actually no AEDTs in use right now. None. So California's law is going to change that because California's law, when passed, it will say um, anything that could be used in the decision-making process or is part of the decision-making process, which is a much smarter way to write it. Um, because then, you know, uh, f any function 
can, that uses artificial intelligence should be considered and should be audited. The positive impact of this that we're seeing is that uh, businesses are now auditing their entire hiring and employment processes. And they, they are doing it because the law requires it. So this is the carrot and stick conversation. The, we encouraged all of our clients and anyone that we talk to, you should always be auditing your systems. Whether you use Phenom or somebody else, doesn't really matter to us. But you should be auditing your entire process. What tools are you using? Where is AI making a recommendation? How are you measuring human adverse impact and decision-making in that process? And can you prove it? What we have heard from a lot of the, again, not a lawyer, but what we have heard in legal circles is we are concerned about the audit trail. Now we're being required to document this entire process, and we weren't before. And Keith Sonderling, commissioner of the EEOC, who we have been in close contact with, um, have interviewed and spoken with at length on this, will tell you, and I'm paraphrasing, um, we don't care how you got to the decision that you got to, if it's AI or if it's human, but you still have to be able to prove how you got there. And so in the past, if they were audited, EEOC audited an employer about their decision-making and they went to, and you know, and Sean hired Cliff over Esther and, and you know, Cliff isn't in a diverse class and Esther is, um, for example, and they said, well, how'd you get that? Why'd you do that? You know, and, and the hiring manager said, well, because they were more qualified. That was the end of the audit because you couldn't prove it otherwise. Now there is data. And this is the concern in legal circles is now you have algorithmic data that can prove your hiring patterns. And this is the challenge. And it's one of the reasons I actually agree with these laws. I think you should be required to audit and have data that proves your hiring practices aren't bias. And, and so in that sense, I think these laws are necessary to keep the humans in the loop. I just don't think New York local law goes far enough. And I also think the problem is going to be um, that local laws will be usurped by federal. Like we cannot have a country where there are, even at the state level, 50 different AI bias laws. It will be impossible to operate. It will shudder the use of AI, which will be a bad thing, because then we're going to go back to it's only human beings who can't be proven how they're making their decision making, which is how we recruited 30 years ago. And the reason that these laws exist was to address human bias to begin with, not algorithmic bias. Does that make sense, Sean? It does. And I will I will note probably that that for the New York City Council came up with this, right? That is not known as the most rational decision-making body. Uh, neither, neither is Congress. Um, so, so political considerations, I'm sure, watered it down because there's a lot of business interests represented in the New York City Council as well. So, I mean, in, in America, compared to Europe, I mean, our, our, our consumer demand for transparency and data privacy is just less. That's my view of it. So we're putting less pressure on our elected officials to come up with the best laws so far. But anyway, um, Esther, do you have any anything else? Yeah, I was just going to follow up because you mentioned federal. Do you think that the, the federal agencies do have what it takes as of this moment? Because they can't, they don't understand AI. <laughs> so like, how do you not? How do you regulate something you don't understand and you're trying to understand and it's like, like explaining it to a five five euro? Yeah, it's it it can be tough. I. 
I don't have I, I have confidence in individuals like Commissioner Sonderling, um, you know, I think is a is a bright spot in terms of bringing awareness uh, and the need for AI, uh, but also the need for doing it in an ethical and accountable way and being responsible with it. Um, we need more individuals like that in government, certainly not to uh, sound negative. I, I think there is a lack of knowledge, to your point, about how these tools actually work. And there's, to, to Sean's point, in America, legislation is heavily, heavily influenced by special interests. We look at the EUAI law and its risk-based focus, and also its focus on the end consumer, which is something that I really like, where the consumer should be in control of how their data is used, and they should be aware and have knowledge of uh, you know the explainability of AI uh, and be able to participate or not participate. I don't think you're going to see that in America at the federal level, again, because of commercial interests. But the th again, the thing that I do like about New York local law, I like about California law, is it is bringing a lot of awareness. And at least on some level, it is bringing a um, legal uh, angle to the consumer or to the candidate to say, I at least have some measure of recourse if I believe that that there was an algorithm that was used in making this decision unfairly. Um, so we're, we're in early stages. Uh, it's gonna evolve over time. It has to evolve over time. Um, you know, but EU AI, that'll go into effect probably January of 2026 or thereabouts, because there'll be a two-year waiting period. I think that's gonna heavily influence uh, what we do here in the United States. But I, I don't have a lot of confidence that we're gonna do the right thing. On that positive note, no, but... Um... <laughs> I, it, it'll, it'll probably progress, but it's going to take some time. That's what I think. So anyway, thank you for joining us on today's show. For our listeners, please connect with Cliff on LinkedIn. And as always, check out our AI stories, mostly written by Esther on techtargetnews.com. And we'll see you all next time in the uh, Targeting AI podcast. Thank you again, Cliff. Thank you so much, Cliff. Of course. Thank you for having me.